0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special wintry episode of The Lumpin' Boys. We have a fantastic show in store for all of you today. We're going to lead off with a couple of quick addenda to um, our past couple of shows. We're going to talk about a new executive order from the Trump administration. Uh, we're primarily going to be covering one topic today, though, and that is the ongoing conflict in Yemen. So for the first half of the show, we're going to talk about all the political context surrounding the Yemeni Civil War. Uh, then we're going to break it up with a little little chit-chat about Dr. Joe Biden. And then um, we're going to discuss what is actually happening in the Yemeni conflict, what the United States' involvement in that conflict has been, and how uh, that relates to a recent cabinet pick from President-elect Mr. Joe Biden. George, I think you you had one addendum, and then I have one of my own.
1: Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the story of uh, Josef Sayer, a right-wing uh, homophobic politician from Hungary who got caught for participating in a gay orgy. Uh, he had to yeah. resign as a result. So I thought it was interesting because Hungary, uh, just a few days ago, banned same-sex couples from adopting children by rewriting the law uh, so as to define family as as a man and a woman. So that's what they're party members are involved.
0: they in. have to clamp down on the seditious behavior while it's still fresh. Make an example. Exactly. Right? Probably had way um, too many
1: right-wing members of parliament participating in gay orgies.
0: <laughs> and then uh, the one thing I wanted to say, I just wanted to issue a correction. Last week, um, I had Henry Kissinger on the brain, and I kept thinking about how much I hate Ken- Henry Kissinger. And I misattributed a quote to him. I made a reference to um, uh, it was someone had said that there was a Castro disease, which is the idea of taking matters into your own hands and you have to contain that. That was actually not Henry Kissinger. That was Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was a uh, noted sort of liberal historian of the uh, of uh, U.S. history. And he said that to uh, JFK when he was the sort of court historian to President Kennedy.
2: So that's that's my correction.
0: Leo, you have some things to say about Trump's executive order.
2: So Trump's executive order, 13950, executive orders have been semi-reliably numbered since the lincoln administration and reliably numbered since fdr's administration but 13950 seems to be a very culture war oriented attack on the annie defranco style white fragility work training it it shuts down any relationship between the government and private companies that enforce employee training for that includes so called divisive concepts, meaning that the concept uh, has either one race or sex inherently superior to another race or sex, pushes the concept that the United States is fundamentally racist or sexist, or an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously or an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of his or her race or sex or members of one race or sex cannot or should not attempt to treat others without respect to race or sex or an individual's moral character is necessarily determined by his or her race or sex or An individual, by virtue of his or her race or sex, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. Or, any individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race or sex. Or, and here's the kicker in my opinion, meritocracy or traits such as hard work ethic are racist or sexist, or were created by a particular race to oppress another race. The term divisive concepts also includes any other form of race or sex stereotyping or any other form of race or sex scapegoating. Now on the surface, a lot of these sound like good ideas. For example, by having an individual being discriminated against or receiving adverse treatment because of their race or sex is bad at least in the opinion of this podcast. Now, where this executive order runs into yep. trouble is the idea that meritocracy or traits such as hard work ethic are racist or sexist, or were created by a particular race to oppress another race, with the issue of that being, it creates the excuse or the conclusion that those that fail in the system fail because of a lack of hard work or a hard work ethic on their port, not because they're facing institutional racism or institutional sexism. Which is the meritocracy, anti meritocracy argument in general. It also doesn't talk about how the meritocracy of the United States is a sham anyway because of the sheer number of nepotistic appointments you have. Like Donald Trump appointing his three eldest children to positions in his administration regardless of their abilities.
0: Right. And I mean, I, Donald Trump, who basically appoints people based on their loyalty to him.
2: Yeah. I mean, a lot of this really just comes across as culture war nonsense, because I I think most of these are already protected by the Fourteenth Amendment and quite possibly the uh, the Ninth Amendment, um, and would be covered in an Equal Rights Amendment should that ever pass. But uh, if only, if only, inshallah, inshallah. But now there's a attempt by some congressional representatives that can I find the number one sponsor? Number one sponsor and author is Joyce Beatty of the Ohio Third District. But it has a tremendous. That's my representative. Oh my God! Nice that it has a yeah. tremendous oh, wow. amount of co-sponsors including my representative doll Payne jr and alexandra ocasio-cortez and i'm sure the rest of the squad can be found among them but you also have people like debbie wasserman schultz maxine waters yeah you do have ilan Omar. you have Marsha fudge you have yvette clark yeah so a, a real a real scattershot of the Democratic Party. Adam Smith is on there too. So it it is a very partisan culture war issue when really it should not be. And the way that the Trump administration worded it makes it seem like any opposition to the executive order is for racism or sexism. So regardless of how this executive order is interpreted or regardless of whether or not the movement to nullify it by the congress is passed Uh, as soon as biden gets into office on january 21st he can completely override this executive order at which point fox news has its first headline joe biden takes down trump executive order combating race and sex stereotyping which i think is a beautiful piece of political chess that's very smart yeah
0: because they're going to say Joe Biden, he's installing, just like we warned you, Joe Biden is installing a radical left, Black Lives Matter, Marxist, Antifa, commie, pinko, fascist regime, just like we told you he would.
2: And, <laughs> and they're going to do that. that. That's going to be what people and use it at the it for. same time, they're going to say to you know their handful of black audience members or their handful of racially concept- conscious audience members, Joe Biden is a racist and he's a sexist. He just took down this executive order written by Trump to protect stereotypes, stereotyping or discrimination based on race or sex. It's it's. And then
0: they're just going to really play up the fact that a slightly larger but still small percentage of black people voted for Donald Trump.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's that. But this this executive order is is a fine piece of bait from the Trump administration. But yes, uh, non-white voters. Oh, yeah. The share of non-white voters to vote Republican is the largest it's been in any presidential election since 1960.
0: You know what? You know what it reminds me of? It's kind of like when Trump cut the number of Syrian refugees we take in by like 90 percent. And then so he started claiming in like campaign stuff that Biden was going to increase the number of refugees we take in by like eight, nine, ten times, whatever it is when in reality all Biden was advocating for was a return to what it was before. But people are just gonna see that Biden is advocating for a gajillion percent whatever increase in refugees we
2: take in. And that's gonna come as shocking to people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's good chess. I don't know if yeah, there's absolutely. that much we can actually talk about the merits of the executive order we haven't really talked about the whole white fragility thing on this podcast um, I'm not really sure where you guys land on it
0: no I know nothing about it but I will say this white people are very fragile
2: Hot yeah tip. I agree I mean white people man my my cool. take on it is it, it's just a, very a, a grift for um, Ani DeFranco but um, I think everything is a grift so
0: you think she's grifting?
2: I think everyone's
0: grifting. Well, I mean, it, I mean, conceivably, it could be.
2: I think we're grifting, and we don't even make any money.
0: <laughs> we're, um, it's, it's we how, how do I put it? We're like, um, we're simulating the life of a grifter.
2: Yeah, this, this is, uh, this is performance. Jeez, art.
0: that's that's pretty meta. This is performance art, Metagrift. I'm into it. I'm into the metagrift. All right, boys. Are we ready? Are, are we ready to meta grift about yeah. um,
2: Yemen? Multi-track meta grifting. <laughs> what? Multi-track meta grifting. It, it's. I spend. Multi-multi-track
0: meta grifting. <laughs> All right, so Yemen, boys. I don't know about you, but I have been reading and watching a lot of stuff about Yemen and the Middle East. How much have we been reading about Yemen,
2: boys? I know that. Houthis are not oh, Tutsis shit. or Hutus.
0: <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. The Houthis are not the Hutus are not the
1: Tutsis. Yep, yep, that's important to remember. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of Yemen too. I think the so, big thing we
0: learned is just how much money there is behind it. Uh but uh we'll we'll get into that in a hot second. So, yeah,
1: surprise surprise, it's all about
0: money and power. Yeah. <laughs> so let me give a a a, a bit of context here uh, on Yemen. So, Yemen, it was under a, uh, a Zaidi kingdom uh, for a few decades before it got split up in civil war between North Yemen, which was led by Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was a dictator, and South Yemen, which was uh, the only Marxist-Leninist state in the Middle East. Very interesting. They reunited in like the early 90s, um, you know, along with the fall of communism. And um, Ali Abdullah Saleh remained the president of all of Yemen during that time. Dude was still a dictator. Then fast forward to about 2011. You get the Arab Spring, which um, actually the anniversary of the Arab Spring was just like last week, two weeks ago, something like that. A few days ago. Yeah, a few days ago. Um, so if you all remember that was a wave of protests that broke out all across the Middle East and North Sorry, Africa uh, against authoritarian governments. It it nope. no it the it very first started like when a guy set himself on fire to protest the government in Tunisia, yeah. Bouazizi was his name. Yep. And yeah. just that, like it was conference. like a it was like a chain reaction of protests. It didn't all happen at once. And it it, it involved a lot of governments uh Changing hands, and uh, as a result, uh, there were there were mass protests in Yemen to get rid of Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had been in, who had been in power of the country, um, the whole country for what twenty plus years, and half the country for in total, oh, geez, what forty years or so. And so he uh, he left power, and he was replaced by his vice president Abdrabu Mansur Mansour Hadi, whose name uh, <laughs> I thought was very difficult to pronounce. Um, Hadi was also relatively corrupt um, The big thing with a lot of Yemeni rulers Is they're viewed as kind of subservient to Saudi Arabia nearby And so Hadi was also relatively unpopular Hadi and Saleh are both members of uh, Or I should say are both Sunni Muslims um, And anywhere between like 40% up to about half the country are Zaidi. And the Zaidi had been in power under the kingdom that ruled for like half the 20th century. And then it was Sunni rule and relatively authoritarian Sunni rule, um, which did create a sort of uh, religious tension within the country. And that is how the Houthi movement started to, um, I guess, rise to political prominence in the early 2000s. I don't remember their names exactly, but there are like two brothers with the last name Houthi, and the movement is named for them. The first brother was killed in a government airstrike by Saleh. Basically, they were advocating for sort of Zaidi resistance to the government. And finally, in 2014, in protest of Hadi, that's when everything boiled over into civil war, and the rebels launched an attack on the capital of Sana'a, which they currently hold. So that, that's that's the immediate history of what was going on in Yemen. But to understand the Yemeni conflict, there are so many players involved here. Before I move on to either of you, have anything you want to add
2: about
1: the oh, history of break. Yemen?
2: Yeah, I believe it's pronounced. A quick addition
1: that about uh, most people know that. <laughs> what?
2: It it's got like the apostrophe in there.
0: Oh, did I mispronounce the name of the capital? Maybe Sanaa.
2: I only took one semester oh. of Arabic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and not to be mean buddy but if i remember correctly you didn't do great
2: i did not do well.
0: <laughs>
1: not exactly an authority then uh so george what was it that you wanted to add oh yeah just a couple of, of numbers uh just to point out how grave the situation is in yemen currently and like oh sort yeah of the notion of why we're talking about this we can talk about this more later but Uh, As of right now, the civilian casualties are measured in the hundreds of thousands by many uh, independent NGOs. There have also been, uh, I think right now, UNICEF estimates there are 12 million children that are starving or at risk of starvation uh, as humanitarian aid gets caught up in the conflict. And, And we'll talk later about how Saudi Arabia weaponizes humanitarian aid. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a really bad situation all around, and it's been described as the worst humanitarian crisis currently happening on the Earth. Yeah, I mean, uh, some
0: of the numbers I've seen for potential famine, like up to two-thirds of the country could experience famine. This is a country of 28 million people and you know the the, the crisis of, of yemeni refugees is is very real a lot of people have fled to neighboring countries especially uh, like somalia is a big destination for a lot of uh, yemeni refugees because uh, it's not that hard to get across the gulf of aden but like it, the, the scale of this conflict is really huge and it's flown under the radar for a long while and all the pieces involved in making this conflict are really complex Yemen might be a small country in the grand scheme of like the entire world but in terms of what's happening in Yemen it's uh, very significant like there are there are global implications to what is happening in Yemen right now because moving on with the context Saudi Arabia is a major player in the conflict in Yemen the kingdom of Saudi Arabia the current head, uh, the current head of the country, the king is King Salman. He is um, one of the sons of Ibn Saud, um, who is the first king of Saudi Arabia um, and sort of the patriarch of the modern day royal family of Saudi Arabia. The House of Saud comprises roughly fifteen thousand people in the whole of the country. It was first founded. In like, uh, I think 17, yeah, 1744 by Mohammed bin Sa- um, Saud, sometimes known as Saud first, and um, they've, they've essentially ruled over the territory that comprises Saudi Arabia for close to 300 years now, and when the Ottoman Empire broke up and Saudi Arabia was united under one kingdom, it was the House of Saud that came, you know, to, to rule the whole of the land, and before long, they learned that Saudi Arabia is full of oil. And so the House of Saud became a, a, a house of incredibly wealthy oil barons. Um, they are some of the most fabulously wealthy people in the entire world. Their own website estimates the family's collective net worth to be about $1.4 trillion. I don't know how exactly they come up with that number. It's possible that they just like value all the oil in Saudi Arabia and then some. But you know it is it is pretty significant all the oil in the country is state owned and they actually use that to fund um, uh, social programs such as subsidized housing and um, universal healthcare coverage Saudi Arabia has thanks to the oil money granted uh, it, it is a country with a relatively high standard of living but. Um, There is a fair degree of income inequality and uh, especially there is a lot of, I guess, super low wage, quasi slave slash indentured servitude labor that exists in Saudi Arabia, as it does in many wealthier Gulf states. But uh, as I mentioned, the, the head of the House of Saud right now. King Salman and his successor is his son Mohammed bin Salman, the sexy millennial prince of Saudi Arabia, who's super cool, super hip, and super liberal. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mohammed bin Salman is kind of the the de facto leader of the country. His father is in his eighties; he's quite old. Mohammed bin Salman is like thirty five. He makes a lot of the decisions that go on. He was not originally the heir to the throne. Originally, it was his cousin, who is uh, like 20 some odd years older than him, Mohammed bin Nayef. And then Mohammed bin Nayef was forced out in like a brutal <laughs> inner government takeover. And Mohammed bin Salman was uh, elected by the Allegiance Council. Uh, the heir apparent to the throne of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the um, royal custodian of the two holy mosques. So one thing that's important is King Salman made the decision to go into Yemen. That conflict began under his predecessor, his older brother, whose name I'm blanking on right now, but he's not very important. King Salman, within two months of coming to the throne, made the decision for the Saudis to invade Yemen. And because I've been doing a lot of talking I'm going to pass the ball to George because I know he'll be able to speak on this some. George, why would the Saudis be interested in intervening in Yemen? So it sounds like they're a, a fantabulously wealthy oil state um, with a relatively repressive autocratic royal family in charge. What interest do they have in the civil war going on in this, this little country to the south of them?
1: Yeah, so we we mentioned that briefly, but uh, the government of Yemen since Saleh's year had always been tightly controlled by Saudi Arabia uh, to the extent that some people would say was somewhat of a, of a colony of Saudi Arabia under the previous regime. And um, uh, Saudi Arabia is is hardcore uh, Sunni, as so they didn't look very favorably at the Zaidi Shias taking power. They felt like that would reduce their influence. And they also feared that that would increase the influence of Iran, who uh, is also Shia and uh, has, does have, uh, did provide some assistance uh, to to the Houthis to this day. So those, those were two reasons they feared they would lose their influence. Now, the reason they want to have influence in the first place is, uh, well, first of all, Yemen is neighboring country right next to their door. And, and they don't want like uh, an Iran satellite or whatever, a state that they don't fully control that could be influenced by Iran to be uh, you know right next to their their borders. Uh, Number two, and most importantly, is that Yemen sits on a very strategic location. Uh, Specifically, it's right across the Gulf of of Aden and the Red Sea from Somalia and Eritrea. And uh, that controls the straits into the Red Sea.
0: The Bab el Mandeb Strait. Uh,
1: Exactly, I didn't know that name, (laughs) or like I learned it it, because I I was curious. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, those straits are are the entrance into the Red Sea, and probably all all or almost all maritime traffic from Asia and from the Gulf States to Europe goes through uh, the Suez Canal in the Red Sea. So. That's a very strategic location that if the Houthis controlled or if a state that's not uh, 100% under the control of Saudi Arabia controlled, uh, then Saudi Arabia feared could impact its oil trade and interests. Yeah,
0: and just to compound on that a little bit. The Babel Mandeb Strait he's it's something like 10% of all oil that is shipped by sea worldwide passed through it. So I know that that doesn't necessarily sound like it's a huge chunk, but we're talking about like tens of millions of barrels of uh, oil that pass through this this little area. Which and that's especially significant. Yeah, and exactly. And it's especially significant that we talk about that in relation to Iran. Iran, which has only sent like marginal degrees of aid to the Houthis, had, you know, they have not engaged in a full on invasion of Yemen or anything. They control the Strait of Hormuz, which sees about a third of the world's oil pass through it, which is tremendous. So for Iran, this is an opportunity to pick up uh, additional economic influence in the oil markets, which is very significant for them because they have you know, there's sort of ongoing cold war with Saudi Arabia, and because they're both heavily dependent on oil revenue, if they can kind of put a dent in that, then it, it, uh, it, I guess it allows them to outpace the Saudis, basically. So there, there are, I mean, there are just a lot of complex political factors at play here. And, um, I mean, it, it it just sucks, man. <laughs> the conflict has been horrible. The toll yeah. it's taken on civilians has been horrible. And everyone involved just kind of sucks. Yep. You know, the, the Saudis are making a really big investment into winning this war. George touched on some of the casualty numbers they've inflicted. The Saudi military has inflicted more casualties than any other combatant group in this conflict. It's... it's uh, the, the suffering that is happening in Yemen is is honestly just quite shocking overall. There are...
1: uh, we said that Iran is also involved, but we should note that really Saudi Arabia is involved way more heavily than Iran is. Saudi and Arabia it, invaded Yemen. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's Saudi Arabia that's tipping the scales because the Houthi insurgents managed to overtake the government on their own Without really any help from Iran at first, and then it was only when Saudi Arabia invaded and uh, really helped the government regain back some control that the Houthis got some assistance from Iran. Or, you know?
0: Yeah. So and even even then, like the Houthis have managed to, I guess, hold on to the land that they've taken relatively well. Yeah. the the war is mostly a stalemate at this point and so that's i mean that's a good sign for the houthis but it it's it's hard to say what will happen and there are other militant groups in the country al qaeda is involved there are other yeah. smaller um, militia groups that are involved it's a very large conflict and a yeah. lot of people are, are dying
1: there are allegations that the saudi side had has collaborated the saudi backed government has collaborated with Islamist groups uh, so it's really yeah,
0: and the the conduct that the Saudi government has engaged in in Yemen has been characterized as war crimes. So oh, yeah. uh, we're, we're we're talking about a really significant degree of civilian casualties, human suffering and just all around awful stuff happening largely in a conflict over resources and influence in a country that's already been beat up by a succession of authoritarian regimes.
1: Yeah, and just to list off some examples of uh, the war crimes we're talking about. So first of all, uh, Saudi Arabia has been accused of first initially blockading and now to this point delaying humanitarian aid to Yemen, uh, making it largely responsible for the famine. And right now the really high deaths from COVID we should know Yemen I think the death rate for COVID is about 30% which is one of the highest death rates that COVID has like in the world and that's because people can't yeah. get treatment for it so you know because COVID, COVID if you treat it you know it can get way less deadly than if you don't <laughs> like most diseases so uh, I think the country has something ridiculous like less than 100 beds or ICUs equipped to deal with COVID cases as a result of the conflict
0: Especially because aid has been blocked to many people. I think by both the Saudi government and the rebels.
1: Yeah, I think there are allegations that the Houthis also delayed or, or withheld aid as well. Yeah, for sure. The or Saudis
0: have definitely done it, though. I
1: think actions of the rebel movement have been accused of that. You know, because they We should also say the Houthi uh, insurgency is really decentralized. It's not. It doesn't have a central command, really. Or.
0: Yeah, their message it's it's death to America, death to Israel, a curse on the Jews, something else. It gets really distasteful. But yeah, I mean they have
1: disputed that translation, but yeah, it looks like that's what it it
0: doesn't say nice things about the Jews.
1: No, it definitely doesn't.
0: Yeah. Sometimes they say we just mean like the people of Israel who support Israel. We just mean like the Zionists. Right. And it's like sometimes when people say Zionist, they mean Zionist. And sometimes they just mean Jew. The key is to know the difference. And these people don't know the
1: difference. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that's true for a lot of them. But, you know, when they say death to America and death to Israel, I I do think they don't mean American or Israeli people. They mean more just the state policies. Exactly i was gonna say
0: you ask anyone like oh what does that mean like you ask anyone in iran you ask anyone in palestine yemen whatever what does death to america mean they'll say well we we're fine with the american people it's the american government this is like middle east 101
1: yeah
2: (laughs) yeah and i had it explained to me so yeah um, arabic is on the farsi are incredible incredibly metaphorical languages but i mean I don't know if that's a, a fair assessment or I feel like it's a patronizing assessment because English is an incredibly metaphorical language. Most languages are. That's true. So literal translation is not always reliable.
1: Right, yeah. Well, it's hard to translate when it's like a metaphorical, political statements sometimes. You know, it's difficult to accurately translate it. Yeah, all
0: true. Now, if... Um... I guess, is there, is there anything we want to add about the, the context behind the Yemeni conflict? I guess I can just say, with respect to Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, they are the two most powerful and influential countries in the region. They have had a sort of ongoing Cold War for a few decades now. Um, it has played out especially since the Arab Spring, with a variety of proxy conflicts that have taken place all across the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, Yemen is perhaps one of the most significant conflicts of the Yemeni, or sorry, of the Iranian-Saudi uh, Cold War. Um, it's really just a conflict between two oil theocracies over power. <laughs> <That's, Yep. laughs> there really is no quote-unquote good side.
2: Why the United States is so connected to Saudi Arabia and so disparate from Iran? Yeah, money. Yeah. We're going to get money,
0: money. So for in terms of the United States and Saudi Arabia, it started um, in large part uh, because we were buying their oil. We buy a ton of their oil. We're their number one oil customer. And then what happened was as they became very friendly to us, we realized how advantageous it was to have such a wealthy, powerful regime that was loyal to us in the Middle East. And then we started selling them weapons. And then they started investing in tech. The Saudi, the Saudi government, or I should say the Saudi Royals and other wealthy people in Saudi Arabia have a lot of money invested in Silicon Valley. Um, the House of Saud is a fairly large shareholder in both Uber and Lyft. For example, the Saudi government is the number one customer of U.S. Uh, arms weapons. Number one customer. And they had a very significant arms deal with the United States under President Donald Trump—a hundred eighty billion dollars upfront in arms sales, and I think three hundred eighty billion total, something like that, over like ten years. This is a significant arms deal. I think it was the largest we ever had with the Saudis. And a lot of those weapons would be used in the Yemeni conflict. We'll talk more about that later. It's—I mean—I mean—I guess that's just how I would put it. The U.S. has money in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has money in the United States. We're very friendly to each other. We try to push uh, mutual goals because we're good at making each other money. That's how that's how I would describe our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Iran we don't like because Iran we
1: put the job in charge. Oh yeah, sorry. Just to clarify, on Saudi Arabia, that rich Saudi Arabian royal family is really good at making money for rich top 1% Americans. Absolutely.
0: In other words, the people who
1: are in, in charge, you know.
0: So the reason we don't like Iran is that we had put in power a dictator, the Shah, and then uh, an Islamic fundamentalist Shia group overthrew the Shah. And they were very anti-U.S. because the U.S. put the Shah in charge and they, they installed the modern Islamic government of Iran wherein the head of the country is uh the ayatollah and the ayatollah is the head of the usuli school of islamic law within the twelver branch of the shia muslims uh so the 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 Ayatollah is the supreme leader of the entire country. His, uh, the current Ayatollah is Ali Khamenei, and every basically the, the the Ayatollah gets the final word on every decision that happens in the country. They have um, relatively democratic elections, and so they they do elect a president. But anything the president does, the supreme leader can overrule it. The supreme leader can dismiss any cabinet member and the president at his will. So anything that happens in the country needs the rubber stamp of a, a religious ruler. And so Iran is relatively authoritarian and a fairly religious conservative society, but uh, it's not as if Saudi Arabia is much different. Saudi Arabia is sort of um, the two major political factions within Saudi Arabia are the Royal House of Saud and the, um, the Salafi Islam, uh, scholars who are the, the Religious backbone of the country's Machinery, and they each kind of Give each other the divine right To rule, so to speak And so both of these societies are, are Very religious conservative, and this is Part of why Mohammed bin Salman has attracted A lot of attention, because he has Introduced some liberalization Efforts, um, such as Allowing women in Saudi Arabia to get Licenses and drive And vote. Uh, also What? And to vote and to vote Um, as well as women are now legally permitted to travel whether within the country or outside the country without needing the permission of a male guardian so i mean these are perfectly fine and dandy things to do Um, but at the end of the day um, mohammed bin salman and his father king salman are both ruthless autocrats who have had people put to death they've had people assassinated including u.s national and saudi uh, citizen jamal khashoggi who was what like hacked apart Right. Didn't they like cut? Didn't they like cut off all his limbs and stuff? Yeah, they cut him up
1: in pieces in the in the embassy. And in they Istanbul. sent out, and then they a pretended they pretended wearing to, his like,
2: clothes out of the embassy.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> they tried to pull a fast one on us. But his wife was and then waiting they were like, for him. They're like, "Oh my God, like, how did that happen?
2: Why is this guy wearing my husband's clothes?" Yeah. Another thing, and that I think arguably is, Saudi Arabia is. It's Another thing that I think is really, yeah, really right. important that cannot be understressed: former president of Iran Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has a great Twitter account. Give it a follow. He talks '90s hip hop. He calls out American imperialism. Uh, he takes no prisoners. <laughs> for real? Yeah, he's a great Twitter. <laughs> I'll check it out. Let me yeah. see if I can find a good
0: tweet. Um, and also, it's it's. I guess while Leo's looking for a good Ahmadinejad tweet. I just want to mention the United States is a large backer of Saudi Arabia and um, Iran is a friend of China. Now, I don't know a whole lot about how deep the uh, Iranian Chinese ties go, but I do know that they are on relatively friendly terms and that China is considered to be a quote unquote backer
1: of Iran to some extent. Well, it's sort of the enemy of my enemies, my friend relationship, I think more than anything. Whereas saudi arabia and the u.s have have a really uh i make money off you you make money off me relationship so it's a little different
0: well yeah with china and iran it's kind of like we'll keep the powers that you don't like at bay yeah exactly we have mutual
1: our relationship with the uh with the saudis might i add but to an extent yeah but the U.S. also makes a lot of money from Saudi Arabia. I, I don't think, I don't know that Iran heavily invests in Chinese capital as much as Saudi Arabia does. In in the United States, yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing I want to say is that arguably, I mean, Iran is terribly authoritarian, but arguably Saudi Arabia is more authoritarian. So it's always interesting to hear politicians uh, who, who rail about how authoritarian Iran is then really love Saudi Arabia and closing up to it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of like one thing I pointed out is Mohammed bin Salman's friend, Michael Bloomberg, he liked to say in the primaries that Bernie was like too nice to dictators. And I repeat, this is Mohammed bin Salman's friend saying this. The United States is perfectly content cozying up to authoritarian regimes. We do it all the time. We do it today. Donald Trump has done it a million times. He did it with uh, Duterte. He did it with Erdogan. Oh my God. Donald Trump was basically a sock puppet for Recep Tayyip Erdogan, okay? And uh, and then Vladimir Putin, who Trump uh, is very friendly with, and he was friendly with Kim Jong-un, and, and I he must have been friendly with Orban. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and Bolsonaro. He and Bolsonaro are buddies. Yeah. What a weird, eclectic selection of white men. I, mm-hmm. no, okay, not all white
2: men, I don't think, right? Yeah. No, not all white yeah. men. Most Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Ah- 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 didn't. Ah- yeah. I found a couple of good ones. One he has calling out, Macron, in an era of global determination to reject racial, geographical, and religious prejudices and to establish a human world, isn't helping to reproduce religious war a manifestation of blatant race, blatant reaction and insult to French people and universal human being. And then in May, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, he said, the scheme of the world powers is to cause disunity in order to keep all societies under control the killing of hashtag george floyd was deeply disturbing and upsetting and is the result of the current world order which we must all unite against and he quotes uh tupac's changes in that pull the trigger kill a he's a hero and then he also wished a happy 95th birthday to malcolm x (laughs) <laughs> oh, Ahmadinejad wow. did not answer you know, himself in the quote. Just, just for clarification.
0: That kind of reminds me, of, like when I I, I read um, like a bunch of statements in like like speeches that Mao Zedong had given about like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and stuff. He, he totally thinks the U.S. government killed uh, Martin Luther King Jr.
2: I mean, huh.
0: Same. Oh, well, probably because he thinks that he would have. Done. I mean, yeah. I, I listen. I don't know much about that situation, but I could see it. Oh, yeah,
2: I could definitely see it. I mean, it. if we were to have my brother on for an episode, I think oh, that would be the episode. Specifically talking about the King assassination.
0: I mean... Is, is he a... He knows a thing or two about that? a He knows He's a thing a or two
2: about specifically that. I mean, I know more about COINTELPRO in general, but he knows specifically more about the King assassination. Um, And we can definitely do an episode on COINTELPRO in the future, because Does he know about
0: Fred Hampton, definitely too? Definitely
2: close to my house. Yes, Ben very much knows about Fred Hampton. Um, both both of us rage about Fred Hampton. Both of us hate the Chicago PD still because of that. Nice. Like we we we'd love it. We we love to hate it. We know. uh we obsess over COINTELPRO in this house. COINTELPRO. Uh, that's Pro
0: that's what place. I like to hear.
2: It's some fucked up shit. Oh yeah, but definitely so, to um, close.
0: So um, I I think before we proceed, that we'll have to talk about it we did operation condor maybe we can do cointel pro next oh yeah anyway i think before we continue chatting about yemen we're going to talk about dr jill biden yeah dr dr jill biden um there's been some controversy over her doctorate
2: i mean it's not even real controversy it's it's pretty funny this guy joshua epstein who's been a creep and a loser for a long time uh he basically wrote an op-ed on the wall street journal about how in a very condescending way about how dr jill biden should drop the doctor because she's not a medical doctor and earlier this year when covid was first starting and it looked like biden was for sure going to be the democratic nominee she was going out and giving out a lot of medical advice and introducing herself as dr jill biden without Fully or upfront disclosing the fact that she's not a medical doctor, but she's in fact a doctor of education, an EDD rather than an MD. And so, Epstein starts off this uh, op-ed with Madam First Lady, Mrs. Biden, Jill, Kiddo. A bit of advice on what may seem like a small but I think is not unimportant matter. Any chance you might drop the doctor before your name? Dr. Jill Biden sounds and feels fraudulent, Not to say a touch comic. And, like, I don't think he's wrong, but I feel like he's... He comes across as a complete asshole. And he comes across as a a fool and a delinquent. Rather than just saying, like, alright, we should definitely have a term for someone who achieves a doctorate but is not a medical doctor. Like, if someone is asking for a doctor on an airplane, they're going to be very annoyed if Dr. Jill Biden comes up.
0: Yeah, I mean, context matters though. Someone's having a heart attack, and someone says, "Is there a doctor on this plane?" Jill Biden's not going to be like, "Oh, they're talking
2: about me." She better. <laughs> she's a doctor.
0: <laughs> she, she's a doctor. No,
2: it's fine. It's fine. She'll I'm a teach doctor. him how to I'm, breathe. No, let me
0: fine. That would be something. Maybe then she would earn her uh, MD. She would impress everyone so
2: much she'd become a medical doctor.
0: Honorary medical doctor. God, that'd be something, wouldn't uh, it?
2: Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of other podcasts that talked a lot more about this op-ed that released before we did, namely, a little-known podcast, Chapo Trap House, and Red Scare. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm sure
0: NPR covered it too.
2: Yeah, but who cares about NPR? They're corporate not crowds. not as
0: big. Yeah, but like some people care about NPR.
2: All right, fine. Some
0: people it means that it, it reached the normie crowd
2: too. It did reach the normie crowd, but we reached the lumpen crowd. So. I don't know how many Lumpen We reached
1: the Lumpen, the Lumpen crowdetariat. Yeah, it's like the meme with, like, the NPR and then Lumpen
2: boys. What, what meme, George? <laughs> I feel like a meme, like, what that works mean, out George? of a visual. Yeah, do you
0: mean what? the one with Drake? The one with yeah, Drake oh, where he, yeah, like, he, like, Drake. He expresses disgust at the first image, and then he expresses approval at the second one. Oh, so it's like yeah. NPR, like, no, 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 no. boys. Oh, that's the stuff.
1: Exactly, yeah. That's did. how
0: I feel. This this
2: show is where I get
0: all my news
1: from.
2: <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, exactly. I'm i way hotter than Terry Gross. I don't you know who that, know that is. I couldn't tell. You don't have to know who that is. Her I'm going to assume someone, someone from NPR. But yeah, uh, oh, yeah, I don't know. Other all right, funny all things right, about King, the article? Um, His name is Epstein. Like our boy Jeffrey Epstein, who did not kill himself. Uh, that's all I got.
0: That's all you got.
2: That's all I got. It's 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 a dumb op-ed. I think. I'm my right of, you, am I uh, right? But I don't completely disagree with his hypothesis.
0: I I get it on one level, but on another, it's just it's just way too douchey.
2: Oh yeah, his delivery is totally douchey.
1: Yeah, I'm like I'm kind of like who cares? She didn't she didn't like offer services to people and like get paid for it. To act as a doctor. That would be fraud, but calling yourself doctor when you have a PhD, I think that's.
2: Just because it's legal, it's not technically a PhD.
0: It's a different kind of doctorate.
1: Wait, she doesn't have a PhD? She's an EDD? It's a
0: different kind of doctorate. It's an EDD.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But same thing, though. It's a doctorate.
0: It's a doctorate. Just like an MD is a type of doctorate.
2: All right, well, clearly we're on different sides of the fence for this one. So, like, uh,.
0: Yemen huh yeah
1: tell Back us to about
0: Yemen. Yemen. yeah man so why does Yemen matter why are we talking about it how is it relevant to the United States today so as we mentioned the United States has quite a bit of money invested in Saudi Arabia and um, that also means that we have interest in Saudi Arabia controlling the oil because that's a big good thing that we we love to see it we love it in this country all right so um. The United States has sold a ton of arms to Saudi Arabia. You know, all the major uh, defense companies—nudge, uh, nudge, wink, wink—Raytheon uh, have have made billions and billions of dollars from our arms agreements with the Saudi government. And these are the weapons that are being used to kill tens of thousands of Yemeni civilians in a war um, that is, again, really just over oil and power. The severity of the atrocities in Yemen have been such that the United uh, the U.S. Senate actually passed a resolution or a bill or something to that effect um, that uh, called on on the United States to withdraw all support that we were giving to Saudi Arabia for the war in Yemen. Donald Trump vetoed it, and uh, even though it was a bipartisan group of senators who um, supported the legislation mostly Democrats, but a bipartisan group of, of uh, senators, there were not enough to overturn the veto. Um, and so Trump, who has been very friendly with King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman, it's um, it's telling to me that he would veto that.
1: And, and it, it was, business interests in Saudi Arabia.
0: Right, now, Joe Biden, at the time that this bill came up last year, it was during the primary season, He said that um, he supported withdrawal of support from the war in Yemen. Question is, will he continue to do that? His pick for the Department of Defense General was Lloyd Austin. Well, General Austin was in the Air Force for 40 years, and then uh, upon leaving, The service, he spent four years on the board of Raytheon, which is a company that has raked in close to $2 billion from our arms deals with the Saudis. It is a company, to put it simply, that has skin in the game here. When your business is war, you want to make sure that business is good. And when it comes to our relations with the Saudis and all the arms sales against Saudi Arabia is the number one buyer of U.S. weapons, business is quite good right now. So already I see that pick, and it makes me wonder, How committed is Biden going to be to withdrawing from Yemen, which is probably the worst ongoing humanitarian crisis right now? Yeah, exactly. And given
1: Biden's and the democratic establishment's really strong ties to Silicon Valley and to Wall Street and to all those large financial and business interests that we just, as we said, really profit from and depend on Saudi, uh, capital, um, I really don't see the Biden administration as very willing to, to really uh, break with Saudi Arabia or, or put pressure on them on the issue.
0: And just, just to boot, like under Trump. Um, the United States has managed to negotiate a sort of uh, uh, the opening of diplomatic relations between Israel and a bunch of wealthy Gulf states that fall within the sort of influence of the United States liberal order. And so all, all of this is, is key to the United States being able to control the Middle East. We sort of touched on it a little bit last week, how the United States needed to control Latin America so that they could control the Middle East. E- everything that happens here, it's all part of a larger game vying for control vying for uh, imposing a particular world order and that's what we're seeing going on in the Middle East and we are seeing the effect that that is having in Yemen in Syria in Israel Palestine it's it's a really complex situation and it's all compounded by the really diverse histories of all the places that we're talking about it's it's really overwhelming i mean the amount of like content that i consume to prepare for this episode i was watching i watched like an interview with bin laden (laughs) because i was working to i was working to understand like how Al Qaeda operates, because Al Qaeda was involved in the conflict, and you know Al Qaeda had a major impact on regional um, politics that have shaped the situation we see today. And and so I was going down all these rabbit holes, reading about different branches of Islam. Like it's it's the conflict in Yemen is so much bigger than it seems. There is so much to piece together and understand, to have a working knowledge of how we got to where we are today. I think even in this episode, we can't get nearly as in-depth as we need to, to fully understand the complexities of this situation. But it's also important to, I guess, open up that dialogue about Yemen because this is the worst ongoing humanitarian crisis in the world. And we need to understand why things are so terrible, why all the actors involved made the decisions that they did and how we can prevent that from happening again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even though there are a lot of complexities in the conflict, as you said, One essential factor that's at play and and that it boils down to that we touched on a few times, but I want to reiterate is uh, capitalists and and the global ruling class uh, of the West and with its ties and the and the Saudis as well, who are part of that ruling class, vying for power, money, and influence, and leaving a mountain of bodies and destroyed uh, cities and villages in their path, uh, because they have no sense of humanity and they don't care about the people who live there. So if I had to summarize the whole conflict, that's how I would do it. And and of course it gets much more complicated than that.
0: It gets much, much, much more complicated than that. But it's God, it's just really hard to put into words how sad and sort of angering and, and it's 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 not like material. <laughs> And this this is why like thing, things like this matter, you know, and the fact that the United States has its hand so deeply in the cookie jar with all these conflicts, these things matter. And for so much time, the United States has told itself and has told the American people that we need to preserve world order and that involves getting our hands dirty but you look at everywhere we get involved and it's it's kind of just a hydra we cut off one head two three four more sprout out every single time um you know it's it's a really sick game of whack-a-mole that's getting millions of people killed all over the world and this is the the state of u.s foreign policy today
1: yeah, there's this notion that uh, interventions are made to uh, strengthen democracy or further human rights or, or things like that that are often used to justify those imperialist wars, but when you look at it, uh, none of those endeavors have that result. And actually, usually have the opposite result. So, um, you know, it's just an excuse that's used to support uh, the vie for money.
0: Exactly. And it, it's this, this, this is why these things matter. This is why it matters that these are the kind of people. That Joe Biden is putting in charge and a lot of people I think are very quick to dismiss that and say oh it's like a minor thing or oh uh, you know you don't know that he'll he'll necessarily go one way or the other but like it's it's not a very encouraging sign and you can't downplay the significance of this conflict because there are possibly up to 20 million people in Yemen who are about to be facing a famine. And the United States has had its hand very deep in the cookie jar when it comes to Yemen, almost entirely because we are trying to defend our buddies' oil money so that then we can get the big tech money for our companies. It's, it's horrible.
1: Yeah, and just to uh, add on a little bit because we did mention the war crimes, just to, to justify that and why it constitutes war crimes. Thousands of civilians have been killed by airstrikes, uh, carried out almost exclusively by the Saudi coalition. Uh, the Saudi coalition has also restricted the flow of aid to Yemen, uh, call like by pretending by claiming that uh, it's doing that to prevent weapons from coming in. But the result is is millions at risk of famine, as, as you talked about. And, um, according to the Human Rights Watch, Saudi Arabia has also attacked. Other civilians, they've attacked uh, and killed at least 50 uh, Yemeni fishermen who were who are fishing uh, just to provide for their families. And uh, they've also detained and tortured many others. So those are just some of the of the war crimes. There have also been reports of rapes, uh, of extrajudicial murders, torture, and all kinds of stuff going on. So it's a really, really ugly conflict that if we lived in a world with justice where where any sort of justice is ever found, um, then the Saudi government officials responsible for that. And I would add the American government officials supporting that conflict and all other countries involved would be tried and, and put in prison in the Hague. So unfortunately, we don't live in that world and only we developing countries might end up being tried for crimes against humanity.
0: I mean, it's just a little Yemen, you know, Uh, it can't be that big of a deal. And it would be such a to-do to lock up, you know, uh, King (laughs) Salman and MBS. It would, uh, I mean, Donald Trump arresting all that. No, that's uh, that's too much effort. We're just going to say
1: it was fine. That's that's actually how a lot
0: of people think. which is Exactly. Pretty cool. I mean, and imagine if people
1: said that back in 1944 about the Nazis, like oh, yeah, it was too much effort locking them up too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it it almost makes me think of how like the the argument in favor of the position that Henry Kissinger is not a war criminal is that if you were to say that Henry Kissinger is a war criminal, then by that standard, almost every president and uh, secretary of state has been a war criminal. And to me, that just registers as, what do you think that says about our foreign <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, there's a reason the but U.S. didn't vote Well,
0: for the things that we do.
1: Exactly. There's a reason the U.S. didn't enter the, the international criminal court.
0: No, don't hold us accountable. We're going to keep doing what we want. And it's justified because we say so, because we have the best judgment, we have the biggest, most giantest brains and very high IQs, as opposed to the people who don't have high IQs. So we are in a position where we can make that kind of decision for all the rest of the world. It's gonna be perfectly fine. I say we just do it. Yeah, a little black though, but, uh, <laughs> this is true. A little bit, I, I'm, I'm like black-pilled <laughs> on foreign policy.
1: Yeah, fair enough, me too. I mean, how could you not be? And, and one thing that Yemen I think is really interesting for uh, is it gives us a glimpse into the future as um, uh, climate change uh, is potentially going to make conflicts in that region and also in Africa and other places more likely as it leads. And it already has partly in Yemen. Uh, it also has been linked to the, the civil war in Syria. Uh, as climate change leads to more drought, uh, more internal displacement and more political instability. I think we will be seeing more of those conflicts coming up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And because all these conflicts are are resource conflicts. Conflicts uh, over capital and and protecting capital and gaining capital because for one reason or another, your group, whatever your group may be, is disadvantaged by the government or by the existing power structures. And so in some way, you want to change that. To favor your group so that your group gets the money and the power. That's kind of how it works. Like Bin Laden, his his major at King Abdulaziz University, the top university in the Middle East, was economics and business administration. Like it, 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 it's all a resource and logistics game, and that's what's happening in Yemen, and that's that's what's fueling conflict worldwide.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and you know, it's always, almost always, I think. Almost all, if not all, wars of human history boil down to some rich people fighting other rich people for money and then a lot of poor people dying for it.
0: For the power and glory of Rome, okay? Yeah. For the empire. Exactly. In reality, you just tell people they're doing it for something higher, but they're doing it for your money. Yeah,
1: of course. It's always for the elite's money. It's never for whatever else they sell.
2: There's a Napoleon Bonaparte quote that goes along the lines of uh, why would a man risk his life for a half pence a day? You must speak to his soul to electrify him. Larry Nimoy does it better. Which is true. All, all right, so do we want to wrap up? All right, boys, all right. Uh, get your Richards wet. Yeah, I guess uh, get your get Richards your... wet. changes, wake
0: up in the morning and I ask myself, it's like worth living should I blast myself, I'm tired of being poor and even worse I'm black, my stomach hurts so I'm looking for a purse to snatch, cops give a damn about a bro. pull a trigger kill a nigga he's a bro. get it back to the kids who the hell cares, one less hungry mouth on the welfare, first ship them dope and let them dealer brothers, give them guns step back watch them kill each other, it's time to fight back that's what Huey said, two shots in the dark now Huey's dead, I got love for my brothers. Don't know where unless we share with each other. We got to start making changes. Learn to see me as a brother instead of two distant strangers, and that's how I was supposed to
2: be. How can the devil take a brother close to me? Uh. I let it go back to who played as kids,
1: and that's the way it is. It's a living city with hundreds of thousands of people. That's why I sort of I feel very fortunate to be able to, to live here. Sana is the capital of Yemen. God damn it.